Tanel and Jeremy Tanel. Streaming to you recorded from Seattle, Washington. Here. Good Sunday afternoon, everybody. This is Jeremy Tunnell coming at you with the Plowline Podcast, and I'm with my co-host, Jerry Ballarosa Tunnell. And we are very honored to be able to have on the show, coming back today, Mr. David Jackson, who is going to be laying down some amazing truths today, uh, <laughs> some powerful words, some good discussions, and I think some good laughs. David? Hey there. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Jerry. How are you? Thank you for having me Good. back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good morning, everybody. Just uh, wanted to uh, actually acknowledge the land that we're on before we get started, the land of the Snohomish people. So thank you so much for allowing us to uh, be here on this land. All right. All right. Let's jump in. So we've uh, we have spent... Uh, what ended up being the better part of two hours uh, having a chance to warm up for this podcast. And we have, we've run the gamut. Um, as far as, uh, I think we can jump in anywhere you would like. Where, well, yeah, where do we start? The, the water start? is warm. <laughs> the water is warm. Um, well, I mean, we were starting with, you know, kind of, uh, this has been a hell of a week. Yeah. Yes, um, in, in terms of, uh, having us do some serious examination about who we are, how we think we are, and how we actually are showing up in a whole host of areas uh, pertaining to race and identity. And um, and I think um, I saw somewhere on um, posted on social media, um, folks were saying, oh, this has been the worst Black History Month ever. And I just kind of <laughs> had to sit back and be like, well, <laughs> I, I don't know about that. Uh, I think this has probably um, been one of the most revealing yeah. uh, moments. And I think we should lean into it. So mm -hmm. you know, where do we want to start? Do we want to start with? Um, well, I, I think I think it only makes uh, good sense to, to start with um, with Cohen. Um, testifying in front of Congress. I mean, that's what we're the really deep talking end. about. Let's just go you know, to the so, deep end. So, um, you know, uh, uh, I think for everybody who listened to and watched that, there had to have been multiple moments of just, is this really, this is really being said? This is happening? That's Congress. This is real? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is, um, you know, it's, um, when I saw that uh, the hearings, um, I was um, doing some project work, and so I kind of, you know, I'm a geek. I'll turn on uh, cable news and just kind of let that sit in the background. So instead of listening to some uh, appropriate jazz or something else, I'm listening to Talking Heads. But um, do you find that relaxing? I do. I do. That's it's, interesting. It's, it's sort of like you know, it's like. <laughs> The world is bad. The world is good. The world is like, it just becomes white noise at some point. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, but I think, um, you know, the hearings for me, um, sparked me to do some writing. And, you know, one of the things I'm writing on is, um, the collision of privilege and virtue. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and uh, we, before we start recording, I was sharing that um, you know, kind of a working title of this piece is um, Mark Meadows and his Miss Millie moment. Um, and it goes back to um, the film, The Color Purple, mm -hmm. where uh, the character Sophia, um, Oprah you know, Winfrey's character, Oprah Winfrey's character, um, after um, uh, being confronted in the groceries or, or general store, and you know, with the proposition of becoming Miss Millie's maid, says hell no, and is you know finds herself in a melee and beaten and ultimately jailed, only to be released into Millie's custody. Um, and so, somewhere in the arc of that story, uh, Miss Millie, in her uh, moment of virtue of what she thought, uh, says to Sophia, um, you know, I've decided that since things have gone so well, paraphrasing, that I'm going to allow you to spend an entire day of Christmas with your family. <laughs> now, slavery was over and, you know, all of these things. But because um, the Sophia character was released in, uh, to Millie, um, this was her privilege. Yes. Right. So because she she felt she had the privilege to allow it. Right. To well, I mean, and at that point she did, yeah. you yeah. know, because right. of the way it was, you know, she was released into that custody. And and so for me, the moment was um, watching uh, Mark Meadows uh, in his moment of privilege, presume his right to question uh, Cohen with the use of a human prop, mm -hmm. um, Lynn Patton, a black woman. Um, who stood silent and but present and have that be the testament to say that this one person, this one example has to, um, in effect, uh, erase all of the you know, decade of experiences that you've had uh, in what you're alleging. But it was in that moment, the reason I call it that Miss Millie moment was it was a moment where something goes wrong with the plan. Yes. Right. And so just as Millie couldn't figure out how to drive the car and becomes hysterical and jumps out of the car and finds herself cowering over a tree, screaming at the young men who were trying to help her, you boys get away from me. I've always been good to you people. So too did Mark Meadows come to his Miss Millie moment when Representative Rashida Tlaib challenged him on the basis that you have presented a racist act yeah. and I'm identifying it as a racist when in fact what Meadows did was to interpret the identification of the racist act with him being a racist. Yeah. Right. And right. so what he objected to was the assertion that he was a racist. And so for me, this is the collision between our privilege and our virtue, because just as um, Sophia in her moment of trying to allow herself to believe that she could relax and enjoy her family upon hearing the commotion as slowly as she was removing her coat, she slowly has to put it back on because she now has to go and rectify the situation. So did Eliza Cummings mm -hmm. have to step in mm -hmm. to figure out how to reconcile this dispute between Representative Talib and Mark Meadows. Mm -hmm. And so there were these parallels of this collision of privilege and virtue. And what we were talking about earlier is 
how do we separate doing from being? Yeah. Right. You know, so you are doing a racist thing, yet you object to the identification that you are being a racist. Mm -hmm. And so that is, I think, the work of really understanding how do we dive into these very critically deep conversations with our allies? Because what happened was just as Millie found comfort in Sophia coming to her rescue, Meadows had to look to um, Cummings to help restore some aspect of his virtue. Yes. Right. And right. so. For the record. Yeah. And so. I don't know what that conversation is going to need to look like, not between Meadows and Cummings, but between Elijah and Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Where they're going to have to have that level of discussion. Right. Because they're obviously they have a deeper relationship than, you know, what we saw. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely. And and to be I mean, I don't know what. I mean, I can just assume what it would look like, right? Both of these men having these conversations about differences. But to be able to come to the place where they can have a conversation about differences and transcend mm-hmm. that conversation to a place where there is a different narrative than what the populace is probably coming up with right now. Sure. Well, but I think, you know, in extending that point, I think, it, you know, in the populist sense, I think this is where the discussion is going to have to go between the two of them, in my opinion. Oh, it's yeah. you don't get to do the things that you did and then seek to rely on my absolution or validation of your virtue. Right. Because at some level, you doing that thing is a betrayal of who you have shown me that you are. That also means that Congressman Meadows is going to have to make a shift um, because in in that moment, instead of him, um, instead of him, coming to terms with his action um he uh he was more wounded by um by an attack on his virtue mm-hmm. and for and for him to go beyond and have that conversation um further he's gonna have to he's gonna have to dive into his mm-hmm. action right and you know it became very uh telling that what he was taking exception to was the fact that he was being called a racist right. and even in his defense sought one of the old tropes of proximity. Mm-hmm. I can't be a racist because I have, he couldn't even finish the sentence right. about you, you got what in, in your family? You got, you know, Oh, 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 I see. So He's a people of color or something. Right, like that, right, right. right. You yeah, have, yeah. Oh, Oh, I see. So, so you yeah. have family members that, you should have been thinking about yeah prior to mm-hmm. you know giving us the congressional reenactment of a slave auction in a congressional hearing <laughs> right yeah so you weren't thinking about that you were thinking that you had the privilege 
to construct that farce yeah in such a way that you would be beyond reproach and yet it was only at the point when someone observed the action and labeled it that you became concerned about your virtue yeah Mm -hmm. and then you needed your black friend (laughs) to come and vouch for you bail you out yeah yeah i think i think the other thing that um that was interesting in that whole thing was uh you know so the junior congresswoman uh uh talib Mm -hmm. um and um and how she was then put um you know, there was an uh, an unsaid moment where she was put in her place, where she was, at, you know, she was mm-hmm. asked to step back. This is not appropriate for mm-hmm. for a congressperson, um, you know, and and to and to step back from her statements mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, and apologize. Well, I mean, again, that's that that was the the again that's that parallel in the Ms. Millie moment, right? So Millie walks up to Sophia in the general store and says, Oh, your children look so lovely. They always look so clean and tidy. How would you like to be my maid? Mm-hmm. And so in the face of just that insult, Sophia's like, hell no. <laughs> but to that point, the men around her came to her quote defense and said to Sophia, what did you say to Ms. Millie? Mm-hmm. And then that's when the melee started. And so, again, Cummings was being put in that situation. Uh, Representative Talib, uh, could you clarify exactly what, what, you, what you said? Now, I think beyond the, the clarification of her statement, which was she didn't call him a racist. She identified what he was doing was racist. Yeah, his action was racist. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the the broader issue that I found even more offensive was the fact that what we were seeing was the imposition of gender roles. Yes. Because what I saw in that moment that started with the identification, the proper identification of a racist act, was the expectation that a woman was going to subsume her opinion mm-hmm. in challenging a man. Yeah, and be able to hold hold right. to it. Yeah. And, and so there were so many uh, microaggressions <laughs> and, 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 yes. and, and yeah. you know aspects yeah. of I can't call it the unconscious bias because right. it was like it was bias. Yeah. <laughs> you know? right. That was like right. straight up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um. That were disturbing in that. And, you know, I, you know, maybe a more um, seasoned representative would have said, you know, I'm not saying that you're racist. I'm just saying that you got racist tendencies. You know? mm-hmm. And if you do that and if it becomes an observable pattern, I need you to help me understand how to delineate your habitual behavior from your actual being. Yeah. You don't get to do things and not be them. And so that's what that was. And so, as I've said, I don't know what the uh, reconciliation conversation is between Elijah and Mark, because that's the level of that conversation. Right, right. But they're going to have to have one. Oh, certainly. Yeah. To elaborate further on doing and being, I think this is a, you know, the, in our conversations before, this is a conversation that is, um, that is, can be easily um, uh, unfamiliar to our culture, to our society. And, um, and the idea that beingness is this, um, is this identification with, with 
um, yourself in this moment, in this space, in this universe, and doing is the action and the navigating that you that you move through it. Um, you can make actions that um, uh, that certainly reflect on on your actions and maybe even your virtues, or just a mistake of, uh, of uh, that you made in the circumstance of the mm-hmm. situation, and it not necessarily influence your being or mm-hmm. can even come from your being mm-hmm. um however um and you used the analogy er- earlier about smoking you smoked mm-hmm. a cigarette okay so you smoked a cigarette so does that make you a smoker no mm-hmm. you smoked a cigarette but if you're doing you know let I me mean, let's even back it down right if you're doing a pack a month mm-hmm. right well w- what point do you become a smoker mm-hmm. right you know what what point is that action coming out of your being mm-hmm. um you know um rather and you know so um i think that that uh in this particular circumstance i think he the, the congressman truly wants to identify that that's not who i am in fact i think he used those words mm-hmm. and um and um, he wants to dive into and protect his beingness mm-hmm. and how that's perceived. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, um, uh, the action, the the action, and the navigation of the conversation <coughs> afterwards um, um, alludes to to different, mm-hmm. right? Well, that I is mean, deeply ingrained in him. Well, I mean, as it is with so many individuals. Right. I mean, and I think, you know, what, what you're saying is what I interpret what you're saying to be is um, what Meadows was hearing did not conform to the narrative that he tells himself. Right. So the narrative that he has constructed is that he can be a hard nosed um, legislator who has his opinions and is going to be even minded and fair and who's critical of the opposition and the, or the witness, um, and that he is above reproach when it comes to race, I in his mind, because he has some dot, dot, dot in his family. Yeah. <laughs> so somehow his being and doing, when confronted with a the reality of what that looks like, if it doesn't conform to his narrative, then not only is that a personal challenge, his integrity, it's a it raises a question for him because it's forcing him into a space of where we talked, I think, um, previously around the integrity. So what he was seeing was this an attack on his integrity. And to be very accurate and transparent, yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Because I need you to reconcile this. And, and again, you know, if we were going to go into this Elijah Mark conversation, you know, that's a conversation where I would say, Elijah saying, I need you to help me reconcile what I saw. I know who you said you are to me. I know, but I need to reconcile how you, Mark, did that as Congressman Meadows. Yes. Right. 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 So are these two different people? Mm-hmm. Because what you did, what I had to do in that moment was I had to, in my role as chair Cummings, step into my relationship with Mark right? in yeah. order to move this forward. So that conversation sort of looks like, first and foremost, you don't get to role switch yeah. <laughs> with me. 
in this space, nor right. do you get to surprise me with your behavior. Which both happened abruptly. Right. And so this is the work and of, 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 of allyship. Yes. This is the work of, of literally getting into the space of saying, you know, if we're going to be allies, we got to be allies. If we're going to be way. boys, we're going <laughs> to be boys. You don't get to be my boy in private when no one can see and then you know basically you know hold the rope mm, yeah. <laughs> you know when you know when you're out in public because that's the narrative that you've told so somewhere in this there's some inconsistencies that we've got to deal with and so i think you know to to your point there was a challenge to the narrative yeah that that we have to allow uh to get reconciled i think that essentially um is um is a boil down point to uh, to the conversations that we've been having, um, even the last time you were here, of that um, rectifying that perspective between the being of um, of the American. I'll use myself, the American white male heterosexual, mm-hmm. and the um, and the doing of the um, American white male heterosexual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and this goes with every baby boomer, you know, um, European American old lady, and you know, uh, I mean, this this idea that that they don't see the um, bias and the um, the inherent prejudice mm-hmm. that exists ingrained within them, um, and um, you know, and that's where. You know, I've got a black friend, mm-hmm. um, you know, comes in and um, um, I don't see color. Mm-hmm. Um, and these things, th- these this is the real meat and potatoes of, mm-hmm. of, of the conversation is we need to rectify collectively and individually the disparity between the beingness of what we think, you know, what we are, what we should be, what mm-hmm. can be, how we perceive it mm-hmm. and the actions, the doingness that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that becomes a harder, you know, it's, it's the hardest work, right? Oh, absolutely. It's, um, you know, which is why I, you know, I said last time that I think the constructs that we use to frame, uh, you know, the work in this space, right, you know, right. diversity, inclusion, race, and equity, um, to me, it's, it's somewhat ironic that as an acronym that would spell the word dire. Yes. Um, is... This is hard work because the construct of whiteness to me is oxymoronic to the idea of inclusion. Completely. The construct of whiteness is uh, the antithesis of diversity. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so this is not about creating comfort within the white normative framework. The work is about transcending it. And so the idea of somehow we're going to find comfort, we're going to navigate it when in fact the construct itself is counterfeit, that becomes hard work because then you have to actually ask yourself the question, okay, well, what does a post-racial world look like? Yeah. And so as we were talking last time is this gets to identity, this gets to who we are and how we're constructed. And so for the uh, the American context, I believe that we find our um, uh, identity 
in the hyphen of America. Yes. It's but what goes before that hyphen is the thing that we have to allow ourselves to grapple with. It's what is the African experience as Americans? What is the European experience of American? What is the Hawaiian experience of America? And because unfortunately the homogenized uh, nature of this society, this American context, has, I think, in many ways, stripped the identity from, quote, white Americans. The construct of identity is whiteness. Correct. And so if your construct of who you are is based on a counterfeit construct, you got some issues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a little, you know, right. there's a whole lot that you have to deconstruct there. Yeah, your very identity is compromised. Right. Your very identity is compromised. And I think that uh I think that that this is this is the heart of the issue mm-hmm. for um for European mm-hmm. Americans. The heart of the issue is um is to is to recognize that um, whiteness is a cloak in which they don. Mm-hmm. They are born and swaddled with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and and if asked, um, you know, what is your ethnicity? Um, they would, you know, many people in this country would say, well, white. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what is your nationality? Where do you, you know, well, American. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean th- that. That is the most shallow mm-hmm. um, of of answers to that quote to those questions that you could possibly have, mm-hmm. and because there's there is literally no such thing as white as white. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no culture on this planet, none zero mm-hmm. that are white. A couple that come real close, <laughs> you know, but I'm looking at you, Ireland. But, but they're not, you know, and. Um, and uh, I, I think I think until uh, European Americans can can identify with that cloak of whiteness, can can identify that it's worn um, mm-hmm. and that it actually can be unveiled. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, we can find the door, but we aren't going to unlock mm-hmm. the door. That's the key. That's the key. Well, I mean, it's it's. I think you can even, you know, get to the place of seeing where it's constructed. You know, um, this was um, part of uh, Martin Luther King's um, message at the end of the uh, on the steps of the uh, State House mm-hmm. in Montgomery, where he talks about um, the pernicious lie. And if you are not familiar with this um, speech. Um, I invite you to uh, view the movie Selma, mm. where it's the closing of, of the movie. But it's the pernicious lie that King talks about and writes about in the letter from um, Birmingham jail, where he talks about the lie that wealthy white men tell poor white men. And that is, if you work hard, if you get up and you do everything that you are expected to do, one day you will be able to aspire and rise above your station and enjoy all the privilege and benefits of this great society. Maybe. Right? <laughs> Maybe. However, if after your honest and earnest toil, you find yourself in, unable to rise above your station, take solace in the fact that at least you're white. Mm-hmm. 
Now think about that. So that construction of that myth can work when you have, um, you know, seemingly opportunity, when you have the ability to be, um, you know, educated and employed, when uh, you have uh, legal systems that are creating segregation, when you have, uh, you know, uh, both de facto and de jure behaviors that are reinforcing a white dominant culture, when you are able to victimize and terrorize, you know, non-whites, um, that may work. But when you now evolve into a space where um, black and brown folk are able to um, own property, to buy homes, to aspire to do whatever, and you see their progress moving at a rate that may not be at the same level of yours, you then begin to question the validity of that statement. Yeah, And, and that's where we are now. And so the challenge, I think, of, of this work is not in the maintenance of whiteness. It's in the transcendence of it. Well said. And that's what, um, in a very real way, I think that's what got um, Martin Luther King killed because he was actually saying that uh, black hunger is no different than white hunger. Right. Mm -hmm. Except the fact that in this society constructed for, by, and to the advantage of white men, black hunger is expected, mm -hmm. white hunger is not. So if you're hungry and you are a white man, it has to be because there's something wrong with you. Right. Because we've constructed this entire yeah. enterprise exactly. to work for to you. Work yeah. for you. Yeah. And so if it's not working for you, there's something wrong with you. And so we've removed an entire swath of our country from the consideration that they are somehow empowered. They are somehow able to grow in the benefit of all of the largesse that a wealthy first you know, world you know nation like the united states can provide and so the myth of american classism right and what happens is when you're confronted with your reality which is you're not partaking at the level you think you are if you're now going back to saying take solace and at least you're white and that's not feeding you and that's not clothing you, and that's not getting you health care and anything else, you're going to start turning your ire either on the apparatus or on the black and brown folk. And that's happening simultaneously. Yes, it is. And so there is a transcendence that we have to move and advance, because if we don't, we're going to find ourselves back in a situation where we're trying to maintain a construct that is just not sustainable. Right. And I think it it begins with being able to talk and be able to have that dialogue and be able to sit with the discomfort of understanding that, you know, for Europeans, it's like wearing that cloak of whiteness mm -hmm. and knowing that this is how you survived as well, too. And if we're not able to sit and have this kind of conversation, then what's going to be happening is that we're just going to be in this constant feedback loop, having the same narratives, mm -hmm. having the same narratives with nothing changing at all. Well, and we've we've talked about um, 
we've talked about how this cloak of whiteness um, can also be it can be donned by anybody. Mm-hmm. It's not just white people. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Which, which is which I think exemplifies even further that that this cloak of whiteness is um, is um, transferable. Transferable <laughs> and transactional. And transactional. Yeah. Um, you know, to it to a great degree. I yeah. think you know it's um, it's transactional, and we were talking about this uh, earlier because the the transaction is another color which is green yes Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. if you can acquire enough green you can buy your way into the privilege that's right you can't buy your way into the color but you can buy your way into the privilege but you don't need to at that point because you're you have the cloak Mm -hmm. and the cloak the cloak covers Mm -hmm. uh your color you know, just like it covers the color of, of, of anybody else that identifies right. as white. Right. Up to a point. Because, yes. you know, there's you know, the, there's my favorite song, um, uh, Billie Holiday, Mama May Have, Papa May Have, but mm-hmm. God bless a child who has his own. There's a line yeah. that says, yeah. you know, Richmond say you can um, have you know something as such. You can take what you can, but don't take too much. Yeah. Right. You know, right. and so there's this point where you can go just up so far to, uh, you know, acquire the homes, to take the same yeah. trips, to own the same planes. But the minute you you perceive that there is no difference, right. that there is nothing that is uh, that that you cannot access, there is that. Yet, but for the ability to fully assimilate, i.e., transfer color, you see the end point of the power of green. And so that, again, is, you know, not just the transactional nature. It is the defining nature of whiteness. Mm -hmm. And it's one in which we have to examine what is it that we believe the color um, attributes to one group of people over another Mm -hmm. that allows them somehow to have a disproportionate advantage Mm. in society i think it's the i think it's the fact that the rules are made by the victors Mm. um and uh and in this past um thousand years of history we you know the victors truly are europeans Mm -hmm. um you know uh, rome fell um, Europe rose, and um, and when it stretched out and uh, and colonized, it um, it it conquered in many different ways, but all under the same banner of um, colonization. Every almost every continent on this on this planet, Africa, mm-hmm. S- South America, North America. Um, and um, and seized for itself um, um, and left in its wake um, all the power um, that fits and works um, systematically, specifically for um, a very specific group of people, the victors. Well, I mean, I think, you know, just even to expand on that point, um, you know, this just wasn't, you know, a group of people deciding that, oh, let's just get up and go see what's over there and colonize it. This was intentional. Mm-hmm. And so, as we talked last time, uh, the doctrine of discovery, which is a papal decree, 
essentially gave the European sovereigns in the 14 and 1500s uh, the sanction for their explorers to go throughout the world, identify and claim lands and peoples in the names of their sovereign at the behest of the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. at the behest of promoting Christianity and proclaiming the good news to those who were unfamiliar with it. And so what was happening was when you have that level of sanction, which still exists today, because the doctrine has not been replaced, mm -hmm. you've given the sovereign's permission to go throughout the world and proclaim that this is what we're doing. And so the idea of transcending this construct, which kind of grew into, um, I think, whiteness um, to, a, to a great extent, in many people's mind was a decree from God. Mm -hmm. Right. So we have to really understand what it means to go back and, and, and really um, sit in this. How did we get here? How did we arrive at a place where a, a statement resulted in hundreds of years of subjugation, of pain, of constructive privilege, of, of an unimaginable um, destruction. How did we do that? But then we can't allow ourselves to sit there. We have to get to a place of saying, in the face of all of that, how do we choose to go forward? I think um, I think your first step is the correct first step, which is how how did we get here? Um, we have to figure that out first. And you know um, that video you showed from Slate.com earlier was incredible. Um, that that uh, that showed six hundred years of mm -hmm. um, transatlantic crossings mm -hmm. um, and uh, and the growing number of uh, of people abducted from mm -hmm. the continent of Africa and dragged. Um, you know, across the ocean to South America, Central America, mm -hmm. Europe, and North America, um, and I think that uh, I think that that doctrine exemplifies a doctrine that must have and surely did precede it, um, and um, and I think that doctrine for us, anyways, all of us in this room, um, um, we are all connected to it, mm -hmm. regardless of the fact that we weren't necessarily. Um, privy to its privileges or even even its mandate and this is a doctrine this i'm not talking about i'm talking about one even farther back this doctrine is rome it's roman um and what i mean by that is that is that uh, the systems of colonization that were utilized in order to colonize the world by europe were for, they were not invented by by um by rome but they were certainly perfected by rome mm -hmm. and caesar's invasions into um, northern europe in the first century AD um, and at the end of uh, the last century BC, um, you know, during that during that period of time, um, there were clear systems. Caesar's own journals, which are the best mm -hmm. documents we have of the whole situation, um, uh, give us a very clear guideline for how to colonize a people, um, you know, claim their culture, domination through warfare. 
erase their experience, um, you know, which would be, um, I got to put glasses on, rewriting their history, mm -hmm. uh, domination through education and language, um, dominate, uh, uh, um, do demonize their ancestors through religion and superiority, colonize their bodies through systematic rape, and protect mm. their privilege um, by instilling hierarchy. Mm -hmm. These these things were used by Caesar um, um, extraordinarily tactfully, mm -hmm. and within a generation had, uh, had brought into the Roman fold um, um, indigenous peoples of uh of france spain germany and all the countries in between and made a strong attempt to do so to those of the of the isle of great britain those tactics were then employed by the holy roman church and those that were given decrees mm -hmm. um to go forth um the exact same thing took place mm -hmm. to the native americans to the mm -hmm. african americans to the native south americans mm -hmm. to the native indigenous peoples all over the world mm -hmm. i mean you're spot on with that, but I also want to be clear. Let's not give Caesar that much credit. <laughs> this, you know, he, he he wasn't the first, mm -mm, mm -mm. you know, to do this because right. if we're going back in the arc of history, you know, we can look at uh, the subjugation of the Egyptians. You can look at subjugation of other other folks as well. Um, not subjugation of Egyptians, subjugation of Hebrews, yes, of Jews within Egypt. So the subjugation of people. Mm has been an historical um, artifact of humankind that there's always been a powerful and a powerless. What is interesting in what you've said from the arc of its origin to now is that blueprint of subjugation has always uh, has existed within the, the Roman culture and has now manifested itself into what I would view as our contemporary challenge of our lifetime. Yes. Which is how do we now look at what transcending that means? And the reason I think this is important is um, we're now having a renewed conversation about reparations. Mm -hmm. And what the, um, the Slate um, animation really was getting at was a matter of how do we need to think about um, uh, reparations in the context of America? Because what that piece was looking at was we can't talk about reparations for um, American um, uh, descendants of slavery without looking at Caribbean descendants of slavery. And so when we begin to talk about reconciliation, the animation shows where the origins of the exploitation originated. So if we're having a conversation in our American context about what it means to put in place reparative justice, of which is reparations in this sense, to whom do we have that you owe us conversation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, And so the reason this becomes important is the slave trade started 170 years before the effective date of the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. That's incredible. Now, let's just be clear about that. That was roughly about 100 and... And so the slave trade started 150 years before the Declaration of Independence. So who are you holding accountable for that first part? Right. Because you know, it, because it wasn't Americans. Right. There it's, were no Americans. Right. And so, you know, the conversation about reparations then becomes one of, okay, so are we saying that it's a wash before, you know, was it 1789 with the effective day of the Constitution? Yeah. And so are then we, and so, you know, are we um, creating that, that frame to say from 1789, we all knew better. Because that's when you wrote your constitution right. and you enshrined these behaviors. Is this going to be our point of, you know, kind of, you know, origin? So from 1789 to 2019, that's what we're dealing with. Or are we actually going to say, well, well, you know, this really wasn't our fault. <laughs> we were just only doing what we were, what we were told. And so, you know, if they were following you know, orders. Right. It, so we got to talk about who did the stuff. We're going to go back, you know, because like I didn't want to go in the first place. It was it was George. It was you know, it was that monarch who did that. But again, we this is what we have to wrestle with, you know. Right. Right. And so that's why I keep going back to the fact that the the seminal document that created much of what we're wrestling with as a construct of whiteness was somehow the permission given by uh, the the Catholic Church to discover in the name of your sovereign and to promote the good news of Jesus Christ. This is not about religion. No. This is not about discovery. This is about the ability to believe that you are empowered. And so this goes back to, excuse me, if we're talking about transcending, we have to transcend the fact that somehow this mindset was constructed from the standpoint that we believe that God decried it. Right, right, exactly, exactly. <coughs> you know, talking about, talking about all of the, um, you know, the transcendence and the... Uh, just the acquired knowledge that we were given through, you know, it's like what uh, what Jeremy wrote about um, dominating through education, I think was one of them that you had. It and was. also um, uh, the dishonoring of the ancestors. Yeah. So the, what we, you know, what I, so claim their culture, <coughs> domination through warfare, um, erase, erase their experience, um, reinventing their history, domination through education and language, uh, demonize their ancestors' religious superiority, colonize their bodies, systematic rape, and protect your privilege. Instill hierarchy. There's a. I think there's also intellectual rape that can happen as oh, well too. Yeah, that's well said. You know, um, with within it. I mean, especially in a, and speaking from indigenous cultures, is that our. You know, I mean. My ancestors came from a place where we were so connected to the land that everything around us was medicine. But because it wasn't um, acknowledged by the West, uh, they couldn't call themselves doctors. They couldn't call themselves scientists. But then yet, indigenous cultures had it for so long. They just didn't have 
a name for it. It was the whole thing of their being. That's how that's how we became who we are. Yeah. And I think where we are right now in our current state is to be able to um, empower ourselves to change the narratives mm-hmm. on where we come from, that we come from a place of powerful people. And I think uh, for marginalized people, we've, we have been taught for so many centuries on how little we are and how much deficit that we come from that some of us show up with that negativity, <laughs> show up as if we have lesser than everybody else because that's what we've been told our entire lives. But when we go back and we um, engage with our ancestry and we find that there is no demonization of our ancestors, but that's where our knowledge and our faith and our ideals come from, then we realize that we are actually standing on the shoulder of giants bigger than what any narrative could have placed on us. So what I'm hearing from both of you is that the solution here is, uh, is uh, you know, at least thus far we've identified twofold. One, restorative uh, justice, mm-hmm. restorative uh, um, nature. And the second, a decolonization process. Um, uh, decolonizing yourself. Um, Absolutely. Talk about that. Well, you know, I mean, it's like with uh, with part of the research that I'm doing in regards to decolonization is reclaiming some of the things that was taken from us. And not, I, you know, and I don't know. I don't know, David, maybe you could talk with me about this. That are we are we reclaiming things that we lost rediscovering what what was taken from us or you know what do we what do we call it because we never lost it we were just told we never had it mm, well said you know i think um <clears throat> i think there's a choice that we have to make is this work about reclamation or the future. Excuse me. What I mean by that is we can spend our time trying to restore. But to me, that's a rear view of who we are as a people. And at the end of the day, I don't know how much restorative work we need to do to make us feel better about our present state. Mm. I don't know if the rear view does that. I think the prospective view gives us the ability to correct a number of uh, ills, evils, betrayals, denials that were a part of a construct, but we're choosing to do something different. And so what I mean by that is, and again, I think this is a fascinating time in which this discussion of reparations is coming back, because I kind of sit and say, so what does that look like? You know, uh, is it, you know, simply 40 acres and a mule? Is it, uh, uh, you know, uh, your personal allocation or redistribution uh, that results in a check? Or 
is it somehow the ability to realize that there are institutions that need to be built and supported that are <clears throat> that are put in place to address the historic ills that result from that disenfranchisement. So we're talking about uh, reparations for slavery. My thought has been, it's not about simply a, a check or an allocation. I don't, to me, I don't think that makes um, practical sense, mm -hmm. but it could if what you're doing is creating um, an educational trust where all HBCUs are somehow engaged with a um, permanent endowment. If you are creating a uh, federal housing program that makes loans available to historically disenfranchised people so that they can buy homes and begin to construct <coughs> excuse me, a level of wealth accumulation that is uh, generationally what we all have ascribed to. Is it um, creating a um, a tax uh, rebate whereby dollars earned are actually uh, adjusted based on some sort of formula that allows you to take a um, a credit that then is ascribed in a different way that then that credit actually creates what could be a fund for business startups and loans. So I think we can use the construct of reparative justice in a manner that creates opportunities for the future so that the impact of historic disenfranchisement becomes less and less and less the uh, determinant factor in lives. Because I think that's just one part of the re reparative process. So how do we level the economic playing field? That work then has to set aside, how do we repair the spiritual deficit, mm -hmm. the personal mm -hmm. deficits? Right. So the work of reparations is not just one dimensional yes. it literally is and so um what i have written um and have framed and um <clears throat> i'll share is i think they're they're critical mindsets that we have to uh consider if we're going to have these conversations i think they're they're four shifts that i'll share first i think is I think we have to uh, move from this space of what we know and put ourselves into a learning perspective. Mm. And so to me, that is embracing a mindset of curiosity. Yeah. What what should we what do we need to know about our past in order to inform our history? Asking more questions. Right. And actually and dealing with what we find. Yeah. And and understanding what that is. Um, I think the second mindset is moving from one of victimhood 
into one of actually being fully accountable. Mm -hmm. And so for me, there's a move from victim to player, and that is where the accountability comes in. It's now that I've asked the question, what happened? How did we get here? I now have to move into a place of accountability of saying, what is my role in this? Yeah, that's powerful. What is it that I need to do? I can't go back one, two, three hundred years and change everything any more than I can change the color of my skin. But from this point forward, what am I accountable for? What can I do? Mm-hmm. The third before you go there, uh-huh. the 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 idea of going from victimhood to player is uh, that's powerful because a player is a participant, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that for uh, European Americans, for for Americans that 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 would be identified as white, um, uh, it's it's going from that mentality of victorhood to player, yeah, to right to step you know to step off of that pedestal mm-hmm. of privilege and to play and to be mm-hmm. right to collaborate mm-hmm. but but they've got the decolonization process too right and that and, I, and that's the perfect segue in into what i call um the third cultural shift my mindset shift which is um unfortunately um i think one when we coddle ourselves in these conversations um we try to create these safe spaces for ourselves to be to have these conversations and so i think in the context of the work of uh, of of race and equity we've constructed these ideas of diversity and inclusion mm. and so the irony is that when we look at this cross-cultural work the rise of race and equity work had to occur because the work of diversity and inclusion right. had become one of how do we become comfortable with the construct of whiteness yeah. as opposed to how do we actually deal with the transcendence of it. Yeah. And so I believe this third cultural shift is one in which we need courage to move from safe spaces into brave spaces because what you're talking about, Jeremy, is in order to do that um that to come off that pedestal you're having to choose to be brave yes you're having to choose to say you know what i'm no longer willing to just merely accept the privileges of of whiteness i now need to become an active participant in the actual transcendence which leads to the fourth one which is um the mindset of change Mm-hmm. which gets into this whole idea of moving from acknowledging into transcending. And so um, there was this one uh, moment um, last summer in which we, uh, a dear friend and I went to um, town hall to hear Michael Bennett lecture. And um, as the audience began to ask questions, there was a prepared question And the uh, question was, um, as a white man who acknowledges his privilege, what can I do to stand in solidarity with people of color? When I first heard that question, um, you know, Bennett rambled, but he gave an answer that said, have empathy. And I said, it it, it shocked me because I was like, I don't need you to have empathy. (laughs) I need you to do something more. And so what struck me was that we needed to relanguage the question. Mm which was as a white man who acknowledges 
uh, the disproportionate advantages that he has in this society and access to privilege merely on the basis of my skin color. What can I do to stand in solidarity with uh, people who are disenfranchised and otherwise removed from those privileges that I enjoy merely on the basis of those, of their skin color? Yeah. When you ask that question, empathy, which was the answer, is is not there. I don't need you to empathize with me. I need you to transcend that. And so somehow uh, progressives and um, other folks who would presume to be um, allies or presume to be woke, if you're going to use that, can't get comfortable in the fact that I have that black friend. Yeah. That I am civil in quote sanctioned spaces where we can all come together when in fact you are consistently relying sitting enjoying the space that is constructed of a white normative culture that is actually um, in many respects counterfeit to where we need to go so I, i think that is you know to me those four mindset shifts become very important in the work that you're talking about, which is how do we enable um, our European American brothers and sisters to step off that pedestal? How do we do it? And I've come to believe that the answer that Bennett gave of empathy is not one of being of of the, the white male who was asking the question of him being empathetic. I've actually taken it on to say, as an African-American man Mm. who has lived and is the manifestation of every horror, every um, aspect to destroy my personhood historically, I need to figure out how in the midst of that entire terrorizing arc, how I can support my European brothers and sisters in their mental decolonization because until that happens this is not going to change that's right and so this is hard work and so that's why i go back to the point we're making earlier which is we may never know what occurs in that elijah and mark conversation yeah we can only hope that Somewhere in that, there's a transcendence of Mark's privilege that he felt was challenged as a result of the virtue that he found to be threatened. Yeah. So that's where I think we have to get to. We're going to leave it there, but uh, we are going to pick right back up with those four next time. Let's start there. <laughs> um, uh, any events, Any anything you want to shout out? Uh, yeah, I have a, um, I have a client, um, uh, an organization called Youth Centric. Um, it's a social purpose corporation. And uh, on March 14th, uh, we're hosting a first look preview of a new nonprofit that they are sponsoring and supporting called Futurepreneurs Unlimited. And this is a group that is dedicated to um engaging the next generation of designers creators and thinkers um for broader economic participation so it's very exciting awesome that is awesome david anything you would like to shout out 
Yes, um, we actually have our um, kickoff event for the Navahine Okamana Power of Women Summit coming up on March 11th. That is open for everyone to come out over at InSpark Co-working in, um, in Linwood. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. David Jackson. Got to put you. in that doctor. You earned it. <laughs> you can uh, you can find um, our podcast currently on SoundCloud, and they'll be on um, on the um, iTunes uh, very shortly. Um, so we'll have them up on Apple um, um, Podcasts um, in a matter of days. Actually, um, you can find <laughs> us at. Uh, at co3consulting.net as well as uh, we have a Patreon page which is patreon.com back